Take your Bibles and go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Yesterday, Teresa and I were headed to Huntsville. It had been since the wedding that I'd seen my folks, and it was time for me to make a trip over there, so we were headed that way. And uh, I was noticing as I was driving that there were a lot of people out mowing their property. And it caused me to think, why didn't I just bring that riding lawnmower in my backyard and drive that over to Huntsville instead of this car? Sound like a dumb statement? It is a dumb statement. The reason it is a dumb statement is because a riding lawnmower is not meant for travel. It's meant for cutting grass, right? Sometimes the best lessons in life are the ones that are right in front of you that you need to make sure you're paying attention to. Here's the lesson of that, okay? We must, as a church, we must act on purpose with purpose. That make sense? Let me, if it makes sense to you, fine, you can go ahead and go, but I'm going to take about 30 minutes now and explain why that's important, all right? If you just want to stick around. Um, my, here's my deal. Churches regularly pack their calendars with church work stuff. And in the process of that, forget their primary purpose, which is to do the work of the church. Now, that may sound like doublespeak, but it's really not that at all. It's one of those fundamental lessons that, as a church, we have to get. Today, what I'm doing is kicking off uh, what I consider to be one of those critical pieces of my responsibility to help us as a church be uh, purposeful in what we do and to stay on track with the way we do the stuff that we call church work and really to avoid falling into a church work mode and leave out doing the work of the church, which is what we really ought to be about. In other words, let's act on purpose with purpose. Um, every year, I'll preach at least one sermon that has to do with this topic. And actually, the better way to say that is every other year, I'm going to preach five sermons that deal with this topic. And it usually is going to be around this time of the year as we begin to shift our thinking away from summer functioning and into the fall and the church year and the school year and back to life as we know it instead of the summer life. Uh, And it's a good time for us to come back and to remember what our purpose is. It's even especially important for us because in any given year, we'll have some people who will move away or some will pass away and and others will come in and our church, you know, is always in this kind of breathing in and breathing out as it relates to membership. There's people that kind of cycle through and it's always important that we come back and we remember what it is that we are about. So before we go into a church year, I'm going to take five weeks now. I'm going to take our five statements of purpose that are according to our Constitution, rooted in Scripture, and I'm going to take one per week, and I want to talk to us and make sure that we are acting on purpose and with purpose. So we're going to be in Deuteronomy here in just a little bit, but the whole series that we're going to be dealing with here is called Who Are We? And really it's Crestwood on Purpose. It's Crestwood on purpose as to what our purpose is, but it's Crestwood on purpose as to let's make sure that what we do fits our purpose. When I was a kid, we lived in Ballinger, Texas. And if you don't know where Ballinger is, it's more or less the heart of Texas, the central part of the state. A little village kind of a town and uh, not a whole lot there these days to, you know, be famous or anything like that. But uh, in the late elementary, early junior high years of my life, we lived in Ballinger, Texas. My dad was pastoring a church there. 
And uh, some, some key things about life and church life especially began to form in me during that time. One of the stories that grows out of that was uh, comes actually from a church family that our family was friends with. And they had a little girl, and I'm guessing she was probably three, maybe four years old. And she and my dad had a thing. You know, it was kind of one of those deals. They were buddies, and uh, we'd go over and go out to eat with them or go over to their home every once in a while. And, and my dad was always cutting up with this little girl, and she just kind of thought my dad hung the moon. <laughs> wow. <clears throat> and uh, <laughs> that's a joke. Um, so in the midst of that, one Sunday, my dad was gone. Now, you got to understand the way that little church operated. Uh, my dad's office was kind of back off to the left side as I'm facing out. It was back to the left side of the stage. And it was one of those old kind of churches that had a choir loft. And it had two rooms on either side that the choir could meet in. And then they would all come in. And so, as it turns out, my dad would leave his office and he would go through where the choir was. And they would all come in together. And the choir would fill the loft. And my dad would walk in and he'd take his seat on the stage. You know, old school church. Well, this one particular Sunday, uh, my dad was not there. And somebody else was preaching that day. And so when everybody came in in their normal way of doing things, this little three- or four-year-old girl looked up to her mother and asked this question, Mom, where's God? Oh, my goodness, that poor girl, she was deceived. That is a great question for us. Now, I know that all of us know the proper theological response. And we have nice big $4 words that we hang on God being everywhere, omnipresent, and, you know, all of those kind of things. But, but let's boil it down and let's make sure that we're dealing with the question at face value. It's not a question that tests so much where God is as much as it is a question that tests us. And it's really, where's God with me? This is an important element, I think, for all of us. It's not just list, uh, uh, limited to some kind of a Sunday application. And, and I think that's one of the things that we labor against here today because, because sometimes we, we come with those Sunday school answers and those nice little tidy theologically correct answers that help us to hide behind a question that might just expose us as it relates to what we worship. Where's God today? I'm convinced. I guess I'm convinced largely because I have been and even still could easily be uh, one of these kind of people. That, that I'm convinced that we have churches that are full of people who show up on Sunday morning and where's God is not really the thing that they're thinking about when they show up. But when they walk out, they're thinking to themselves either flagrantly or just kind of subconsciously, they're thinking, where is God? Because he sure wasn't in church today. How often have you walked out of these services or Sunday school class and you walk out and you think to yourself, that was a waste of time today. In other words, where was God today? Maybe this question reveals more to us about us than it does anything else. I want us to start today, before we get to the scripture, and we're certainly going to do that, but I want us to start as we consider our constitution as a church. This is the basis of these next, this one and the next four sermons after this, because in our constitution, that document that we as a church 
adopted a several years ago now that says we quote our purpose to be and then we list these five statements. If I gave you a test before we even get to it today, I wonder how many of us could step back and and pull together five different statements of truth that help us to know who we are and what our purpose is. Of course, it follows that if we can't recollect what we're about, the opportunity for us to get it right in how we function is pretty limited. Our first statement of purpose. I think it's well stated, even though I think it's a little bit weak, and I'll come to that in a moment. But here's our first statement of purpose according to our Constitution as a church. It is the maintenance, pay attention because this is a little bit of church speak. The maintenance of the worship of God and the observance of the Christian ordinances. Now that's a little churchy. Okay, And it's okay, I'm not arguing with our statement. I helped come up with it, so I'm certainly not going to bash it uh, too much because, you know, I mean, you, I, that, I wouldn't do that about me. Okay, so, yes, I would. But here, we, we pulled it down into bumper sticker kind of statement because most of us are not going to remember the churchy stuff, but we can remember this one. just happens that all of these five statements we pulled down to bumper sticker statements to help us remember what our purpose is. So here's what it is. This first one, if we put it in our terms that we normally use, exalting the Savior. In other words, we believe that worship is a critical part of our purpose. Before I get to what I think is the weakness of it, I want to acknowledge some of the truth of what it is. Here's one of those things I want to hang out there for you, and I hope that you'll hang on to it. Here's another way of saying what we just said. Worship must be prioritized. Now, that's applicable on a personal level. That's you personally. It's applicable on the corporate level. That's all of us. When we gather here to worship together, then we need to be able to do that in a way that is purposeful. Here's why we think it's such an important thing. First of all, it's all through Scripture, this whole concept. But because, you know, as Baptists, we like to quote Baptists more than we like to, you know, quote Scripture sometimes. Here's a statement from Franklin Siegler, who was a longtime Baptist leader in the field of Baptist worship. He worked for the Sunday school board, did a lot of that kind of stuff. In his book, Christian Worship, he said this, The first order in the church's mission is worship. Now, stop for a second. And let's try on some of these statements as we work our way through them because what we're doing now is we're talking largely as a corporate body. We're reviewing our purpose. And if this is true, then we have to judge ourselves according to these standards. If we say that the number one entry on our point of purpose is worship, then let's try it on and see what it says. He says the first order in the church's mission is worship. All other ministries are motivated By worship and without worship, the church will die. That's a pretty heavy statement. As a matter of fact, I think I would just add to that, that's such a heavy statement that let's just look at church in America these days and how many churches do we know that uh, seem to be dying or are dead? And how does worship fit into that? We have good biblical support for this. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, if you are one of those people that like to write in the margin, you know, preacher talked about this verse on this day, 
then by now you're starting to run out of room on this little passage of Scripture. Right? Because this is one that I keep bringing up for us. The reason I do is because it fits into the whole scheme of the Christian life in such a way that Jesus said it's the most important of all of them. So that's pretty, pretty good grounds for coming back to it from time to time. I will promise you, though, if you're keeping notes like that, that, you know, preacher preached on this, this is not a retread sermon. This is whole fresh stuff, new application. I'm not even going to spend a whole lot of time explaining the verse today as much as I am going to try to get us to wear it. As we walk away from here today. So, Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. Now, let me set the stage here. This is in Moses' life, towards the end of Moses' life as leader of the people of Israel. They've been wandering in the wilderness. They're about to go in to take the promised land. And God gives Moses this point of reminder. Moses is passing on to the people. Don't forget these things as you move forward. Chapter 5, he gives what we call the Ten Commandments, the law. Mount Sinai, God visited them, said, this is the rule of the relationship that we're going to have, me as God, you as my people, and part of that is the Ten Commandments. So we get to chapter 6, beginning in verse 4, this is what it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your might. Now, I always want to stop here. Let me go ahead and finish the next verse and we'll come back to verse 5. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. We're going to get to some other verses in just a little while, but I want to make sure that this comes home for us. It's a strange passage for a preacher to get up and talk about worship on because normally when we talk about worship, we go to the Psalms and we go to those places where we can uh, we can hang some practical music stuff on worship talk. But my contention with us today is that this passage embodies for us the central teaching when it comes to worship. And it all begins with this idea of relationship between God and his people. And in that relationship, God says to them, and Jesus later will say the most important commandment of all the ones given is this one, love the Lord your God with every part of who you are. Remember, those of you who have uh, notes in your margin, that what we say about this passage every time we come to it is, this love is not the emotional feel-goodism of our day. This is a love that is a choice that is made. It is a legal term. It's a contractual term between one who has all the power and one who has no power. And it is the contractual agreement that says, on my part, I will take care of you. And on your part, you will prioritize me in your life. Love, in this context, means God says, I must be first. Actually, when you put it all together, he says, I must be only in your life. That's the basis of this. It's another way of saying for us that worship must be prioritized. As we work our way through our daily Christian lives and the way we live it out in the bottom line part of life for us, we have to get this right. And if it's so central and if it's so important for us, we need to make sure that we understand it well. And that becomes a problem for us. Because when we, when we come to discussions of, mu- uh, of worship, we immediately want to go to music and music style. One of the most influential professors I ever had was a guy... Uh, Terry York is his name. 
And for many, many years, he was one of the chief factotums in Southern Baptist life as it relates to music. He still is a music professor. Uh, he also is a great professor on leadership. And much of, of the uh, benefit that I received from my last level of, of formal educational training came at his feet. He, he gave this term. I don't think he coined the term, but, but he used this term in such a way that just made it kind of come to life for me because I happened to be living through a situation in church I was serving at the time uh, that he was just handing, he was throwing truth at me and I was hanging these examples on everything that he said. He used the term about Baptist churches, not just Baptist, but that's our specialty, isn't it? So he was talking about the worship wars of churches. The worship wars almost invariably fall to a discussion about music and music style to be exact. So before we go any further as we talk about getting this right and understanding the term that we're using, let me give you this to hang on to even though I know that it may elevate the temperature a little bit for a few of you. If your definition or your idea of worship includes or requires music, You've missed the essence of what worship is all about. Now, that's a huge statement. Because I, I, I can go back in my mind through numerous, probably dozens, maybe hundreds of discussions I've had through the years with people, teenagers as a youth minister all the way through to these days as a pastor in a church at large, a large church. Uh, um, and... Um, one of the things that just we, we just immediately gravitate to if we're talking about worship, that we're talking about the musical part of a worship service. Isn't that interesting that we even label these times that we meet the worship service? If we labeled this time based on your frequency of really worshiping in here, could we still call it a worship service? We might call it a distracted thought service. And some of you are going, what did he just say? We might call it the let's think about what is for lunch service. Why do we call this a worship service? Why do we refer to the worship service usually as the music part of the service that we do? I'm disturbed by a statement that was made many years ago now by one of the great Southern Baptist evangelists of yesteryear. His name was Manly Beasley. Very influential person in my life and the life of our family. And I heard him say or read it somewhere, one of the two, that he believed that the average Christian probably only really worshiped genuinely once or twice in their entire lifetime. I, I hope he was wrong about that. Would he be right in your life? When we come to talk about worship, and remember, the whole context of this sermon is we're talking about the primary of the five different things that we say we're about, the primary one, the first place one, the one that we got first on the list on purpose is we're about exalting the Savior. It is about worship for us. My concern is that worship might just be so misunderstood 
that is a foreign concept to us. So I want to start, and I know that scares you because I'm a long ways into it, but let's start off by talking about what worship is. So here's a definition that comes from, this is a guy that, uh, I don't know, he probably knows a little bit. He's relatively smart. Uh, some of you will know him. His name's N.T. Wright. He's one of the great Christian thinkers of our day. Here's what he says in his book, Simply Christian. He says, worship means literally acknowledging the worth of something or someone. Now, let's stop there for a second, and let me take that part of this. Now, he's going to take us to Christian worship, uh, but let's stop there for a second, and let's try on his definition so far. Worship literally is the acknowledgement of the worth of something or someone. I'm going to say to you, and I think I can pretty well back this up, that in about an hour and a half, two hours or so, the world will collectively have a worship service in Rio de Janeiro. Because at about 2 o'clock or so, our local time, the kickoff for the World Cup final will occur in Rio de Janeiro. And this world and many, many elements of it are going to come to a screeching halt because people are going to worship at the altar of that sport. Now, let's don't be too hard, those of you who are not soccer fans. I already told you last week I'm praying for you if you're not. But if you're not a soccer fan, let's don't be too hard on the world for the soccer seasons because in just a few weeks, we're going to go into football season. And whether it's your college team or your pro team or your high school team, we're going to all start worshiping at the altar of the football god. Or deer season's going to come around and we're going to start altering. Okay, now I'm getting way too personal. I've said numerous times, once this week, our society in America has begun to worship at the altar of the child. So N.T. Wright gets us started by saying worship means literally the acknowledging of the worth of something or someone. The fact of the matter is we're all worshiping something today. He goes on to say it means celebrating the worth of someone or something as superior to oneself. Now, see, that's the part of it. That now starts getting a little, we, none of us, none of us in this room would say, well, you know, soccer or football or whatever it is for you is more important than me. So maybe the definition that I'm given for worship doesn't quite hit us all that well. But what it does, if we accept Wright's approach to this, is it forces us to deal with the question, where's God? My suspicion, here's, now, I'm, now I'm to the weakness of our statement that we have. My suspicion is that it's quite likely that what we tend to do is limit worship to what happens at church at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. I don't believe we can sustain that with Scripture. And as a church who seeks to act on purpose with purpose... We need to get this right because part of our responsibility, and I'm going to tell you, this is the heart of your pastor talking to you now. Our responsibility as a church is to equip people to live lives that are marked by worship. Not have great worship services on Sunday. We want to have that, but that's not our primary deal here. We want to equip people 
to live lives that are marked by worship. How do we do that? If we don't understand the term or if we get off point on our purpose, then what happens is we begin to fill our calendar, our church calendar now I'm talking about, with all kinds of activity, that's church work, and we totally neglect the work of the church, which we're saying the most important thing is to help people worship. We've got to get this right. So here's my working definition. Okay, I like it. Okay? I like my opinion about this. I like it so much, I hope to help you have the same opinion. Now, you don't have to. I'm all right with that. N.T. Wright, he'll give you all of the souped-up theological stuff. Okay, I'm going to give you right down on the bottom shelf how I think it works best. Worship is the appropriate response to an encounter with God. That's simply stated. It's the appropriate response to an encounter with God. We have all kinds of great examples of that as we work our way through Scripture. You remember Isaiah chapter 6? Okay, now I know that I'm laid into it here, but you you with me? You remember Isaiah chapter 6? Okay, there's your homework. Before the World Cup starts, go read Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah is confronted by God himself. The picture is the throne room of heaven. And how does Isaiah respond to that? The short answer is he responds in worship. And it is clearly what N.T. Wright pointed us to, which is, man, this is going to be superior to me because Isaiah says, woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips and I live with a bunch of dirty, filthy, rotten people also. See, when you get a glimpse of God, that's easy to see that about other people and yourself. Worship drives this for us. It is the appropriate response to an encounter with God. That's why Aaron gave us those passages of Scripture, Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 13, about Abram, who would later become Abraham. And as he worked his way through this obedience to what God had said to him, there were times that God showed up. And when God showed up for him, he stopped and he built an altar. Worship is the appropriate response to an encounter with God. That being so, one of the things that we have to get to is how do we make sure that we have those encounters? Okay, now this is one of those... Try to twist the way we think and get some momentum going here to change some stuff. It is not about Brian trying to figure out how to get you to worship in a worship service. It's how do I have an encounter with God today and tomorrow and the next day. And it is this ongoing process of encountering God in life The natural response, maybe even a better way to say that, is the supernatural response. Because if God's not in it, it's just stuff. Churches are full of people doing just stuff in the name of worship. It's the encounter that drives it. Let me give you this metaphor. and I'm going to try to start pulling it down because I'm out of time. Wow, how did that happen? A little over a month ago now, I had the distinct privilege of unloading my daughter on an unsuspecting young man. <laughs> Lauren got married, and uh, it's been, oh, it's been, you know, sometimes God just gives you little pieces of heaven here on earth. I had a little bit of that last weekend. Lauren and John were here to visit for the fourth, and 
they were they were talking. Uh, I know I'm twisted and all that kind of stuff. I'll, I'll just exp- let you see how twisted I am. They were telling us about how they got back from their honeymoon and immediately they had car trouble. And I went, yes. <laughs> and then she said, and you know, so she's telling the story of how it all played out. And, and I'm thinking, see, I'm I'm hearing what she's saying, but I'm thinking to myself. And you didn't call me. Yes. And then, and then she comes to the golden line of the whole thing. We had to spend half of the money that we got for our wedding to have my car fixed. And I went, yes, thank you, God, for that. <laughs> so back to the wedding for a second. I know that, you know, there's that urban myth that Baptists don't dance. Uh, I know that's an urban myth because I've seen some of y'all dancing. Um, But it's not totally wrong because as a rule, I don't dance. Okay, The reason I don't dance is because I have no rhythm, all right? And when I get out, I've tried doing this, and, you know, bless Teresa's heart, uh, just no rhythm. And I'm so self-conscious. It's like, you know, NBC News is just following me with a camera. That's what I feel like all the time. So, uh, and so I'm, I'm struck with this unfair expectation at my daughter's wedding that somehow the father of the bride has to dance with her alone with everybody watching. And I'm thinking, that's just not right. I don't have a vote in this deal, I figured out. And so here's it. Lauren and I are out there, and we're trying to do this dance thing, right? Now, I know enough about dancing to know that I'm supposed to lead, okay? I'm the man. I I watch Dance with the Stars. I know how this works. (laughs) And so I'm out there, and and it's awkward. First of all, this is my daughter. Where do I put my hands? (laughs) So I'm... Dancing with Lauren, and I'm supposed to lead, and it's just herky. I didn't say twerky. I said herky. (laughs) Look at our teenagers. Herky, jerky, just not right. But you know, if you do it right, because I've seen some of y'all do it right, dancing is smooth, and it's graceful. And it seems to be fun. I've never experienced that. But some people seem like they're having a lot of fun as they do that. And it's it works. Right? I, I want to take that picture and I want to use it as the metaphor for worship. Okay? Because if I get this passage of Scripture right, we put God first, then that's essentially God saying... Let's dance. And your life becomes this dance with God. And he's leading. And because he's leading and because he knows what he's doing, and you lock in with him as you go about your life and you're moving around life's dance floor, uh, it's good and it works. And, and there's a closeness with God that you get as you love him. Back to Deuteronomy 6 and and it, it just works. And it's a beautiful thing. And even people around you begin to look at your life going, man, there's something about that person. Even though they go through trials, they still seem to be okay through all of that. And God just moves you around the dance floor of your life. And, and it's worship. And as he does that, every step of the way, you get drawn a little closer to him. 
And, and you begin to see him a little more for who he is than just what you learned in Sunday school or what the preacher talked about. And it becomes a personal experience. And so as you work with him through life and that dance becomes more and more worship for you and your heart begins to tie into his and he walks you through it and his elevation in your mind goes even higher. You see, the word worship comes from a couple of words. We put, it's the worth Ship of this one who is more worthy than you. And this picture of a dance with God as the worship of your life, the more you're with him and walking with him and loving him, the more worthy you see him to be. Our problem with that is that we like to lead. And it just messes up the dance. And God will allow you to make the choice to try to be in charge of your life. But what happens is, ultimately, you begin to worship yourself. And it just doesn't work. And so here in Deuteronomy, one of the crucial passages, the high points of the Old Testament, in my opinion. God says to his people, let me lead But he also says, let's dance here. Look at the verses 7 and following here very quickly, and I'm trying to close it up. Verse 7, you shall teach them. All right, now back to verse 6. Sorry, Spencer. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Don't miss that because what happens now, we get to this next part, and it's like we begin to just segment it and push it off to the side, and so then it becomes just stuff we do. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them, et cetera, et cetera. You can read through that. And so we we begin to categorize all of this stuff of worship and we get all the boxes checked off. And we miss verse 6 that says, and you shall write them on your heart. What I'm saying with all this ultimately is that worship is a way of life. Practice. This is taking this from a monk from many, many centuries ago. Brother Lawrence said something to this effect. It is practicing the presence of God in every element of your daily life. Which brings us back to where's God? You know, if you get this right, it's going to matter. In your life. True worship is a natural outgrowth of a life that is lived in fellowship with God. True worship is the outgrowth of a life that is lived in fellowship with God. It's not Brian's job to help you worship. If you come in here expecting him to have picked songs or types of music that you like, you don't understand what worship is. Because worship is not Brian's job. It's not my job. It's not your Sunday school teacher's job. It's not, it's not our job. Your job is for you to worship. And God says, let's dance. But he's going to insist on leading. Last statement that I want you to take home with you is that worship will get into the cracks and the crevices of your life. If you start this fellowship with God that leads to daily worship, it's going to get right down in there where you don't like it to get, like in your wallet and in your calendar and in your relationships. 
into how you talk and all of those things. And our job as a church is to help people live that way. How are we doing with that? If we got a report card today, how good is Crestwood at helping people worship? Whatever else happens to Brian, to Aaron, to me as staff members, to you as a committee member, to you as a Sunday school teacher, to you as a program director in this church, whatever else you do, one of the things that has to be part of how we do church around here is we've got to find a way to help people dance with God. Who'd have thought there'd be a day when a Baptist preacher would be encouraging people to dance? Let's pray. Father, we are not comfortable with these kind of demands that you place on us. So we ask that you would meet us at that point of discomfort and draw us close to your heart. Help us to develop a trust in you that takes us beyond all of the ritual and the traditions and all of the stuff of church work and help us get the work of the church right. And if you need to clear the stage of our life, if you need to take away all the bells and the whistles of worship that we've built around us, and if you need to put us in a quiet place where there is no music and no preaching and no nothing except your gentle voice that says, let's dance. Please feel free to do so. Help us get this right, please. In Jesus' name.